well, this is our last week of discussion, so good job, everyone, for reading the books. Y'all did a great job, so I appreciate your all's effort. Uh, it would literally not work if you did not read, so thank you. Yay for, for making my reading short. Yay! That was not me, that was hospitality group. I literally doubled the size of what they gave me, and it was still three pages. So, you know, that's, what, that's where we're at. So, um, yeah, I hope, hope you guys have enjoyed this topic. Any discussion questions that just like jumped out at you this week? Jumped out is strong. I know, but I it, I was I'm trying I'm come, I'm trying to come hard. <laughs> yes, video. You mean about the reading, right? Yes. Wow. Look at you. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so essentially we were actually just having we had a question right here, and I'm yeah. sure maybe there are others who have the same. And it's the bait and switch type of thing where you mm -hmm. know instead of being your friend. Instead of inviting a friend, just like say, hey, I'm going to talk to you about Jesus, right? Yeah. Like, what's the appropriate, more, uh, you know, less bait switchy way to do it? Julia. And just to, like, kind of, like, further explain the question, it's less about, like, I guess the more appropriate way to do it, because I understand, I feel like we all have, like, the common sense of, like, trying to make something more natural or as natural as it can be and, like, pacing it, mm -hmm. but more, I guess... I brought this up because the way he said it, it's like, you know, don't bait and then switch. But I felt like, even if you pace it, even if you're natural, aren't you still technically like baiting them anyways? So like, what's the difference between pacing and not pacing? Like you're still gonna, you're still inviting them for the purpose of sharing the gospel at the end of the day. So you are baiting them in a way anyway. So like, is that wrong? Um, one thing that we talked about in our group was, um, I think at the bottom of it, it's whether or not the person feels like they were manipulated or deceived. Mm. So, like, if you if you invite them over and you explicitly say, like, the purpose of you coming over is to have dinner and meet my kids, and, like, that's all that you say, and then you come over and you're like, so, um, yeah, we wanted to talk to you about the gospel, and then do that. Like, somebody who, yeah, like, <laughs> someone, someone who's not a Christian is probably going to be maybe a little bit off put by that yeah. because they feel like you invited them for one purpose and then did something totally different um, versus like, you know, we were saying like for us, okay, as a Christian, say, hey, Jehovah's Witness invited you over and they're like, hey, I want you to come over for dinner and meet my kids. And then you go over and they're like, so here's why you should be a Jehovah's Witness. <laughs> like you would feel manipulated as a Christian. Now we would probably not be as personally offended because we'd be like, ah, a witnessing opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. But for somebody who is not religious in any way, they're going to be a little upset probably that you like essentially deceive them and kind of lie to them yeah. like here's the purpose of you coming when that was not the purpose of them yeah. coming so either be upfront with them or don't make it like a you know like Josh gave the example when they did their hospitality thing of like you know if they if they bring something up like yes use that as an opportunity to share the gospel like you would at any other time mm -hmm. but don't make it like this you know okay yeah. came over the for point this purpose, of and then, and then you just totally Abandon that and then are like, let me shove the gospel down your throat. Yes. Chloe. So um, I had a semi similar problem when I was sending out messages to invite people to our hospitality practice kind of thing yeah. because Julie and I partnered up and we basically uh, decided to target unbelievers mm -hmm. specifically for the purpose. Target was an interest. No, I mean. <laughs> Of 
being a light in their life, but also doing something better. And for me, like the girl that.
have inviting people over to evangelize is well now I'm all flustered up and can't speak, but uh, you got this, bro. Uh, but no, so I think it's real dangerous because you do see the manipulation real easy, and I think you will get in this concept uh, of being very, trying to be like, I'm gonna share this with them soon. I'm gonna do this. Well, that's if you worry about yourself and make sure you are being as Christ-like as you can, Christ flows through you more than you'll notice. Because uh, I've been on both sides of that where I've been like, you know what, you need, you need Jesus. Let's have a discussion. And then I've also dealt with people that uh, I've interacted with just in the gym. there, And I, I got a, struck up a conversation with him. And he's like, I could tell you were a Christian. And he goes, something was just different. And it struck something with me. I, I like, and it started a whole full-blown conversation. So if you, not to make it more inner, or like focusing on yourself completely, because there's a balance, <laughs> but make sure that you are doing what you can to be as Christ-centered as, as possible. Mm-hmm. And it kind of naturally goes, because, and then maybe this is just a weird belief of mine, or, you know, just my own style, but... The Lord will give you, you know, those people when you're that way. You're not going to fumble it. You know, the, it's going to be easier for the Holy Spirit to work for you. It all blends together and it works. So make sure you are right with yourself, and the hospitality part will kick in naturally to an extent. So I think love is a big aspect of it. It's not going to feel like manipulation if you're trying to love the person. Yes. Mm-hmm. If you're trying to invest in them yeah. and build them. And when you just jump straight to the God, like gospel, that's going to feel like manipulation. You truly it's, care about them. And so mm-hmm. it's important to build those relationships with them. And mm-hmm. when you might end up sharing the gospel the first mm-hmm. time, you might end up sharing it the tenth time, but just investing and building in relationships yeah. with people is... Sure. Yeah. Sarah? So I can kind of second that, not as someone who shared it, but someone that's received it. Mm-hmm. Before I got back into my faith and everything, when I moved to, when I lived in Illinois, I was out of it relationship with my grandparents and they were one of those Christians that were shove it down your throat. You talk about it every single sentence that they would say every day and that was something that just did not mesh well with me and it made it harder for me to follow because of how much they stuck with it and I really like the fact that how he says like it's you apply if you apply love it seems like it's more pure and you have more of a heart for them to do that. I've received that here Whereas with my grandparents, one Christmas, my grandma literally knit a teddy bear and gave me a sinner's bear. They sent me a bear that had sinner's Bible verses on multiple cards attached to that teddy bear to try to get me to go back to church and get baptized and go back into my faith. That's right. I cried that Christmas. I've never cried on Christmas, but I cried that Christmas Christmas because they didn't have that love. They might have had that quote-unquote heart, but they didn't have that love and compassion to bring it in in a healthier way instead of being more diving in. Yeah. So I'm just like agreeing like with him being one that's received that. So. Yeah, for sure. Hayden.
It really does. But it comes from Nothing says I love you like a billboard of death. That is the game plan. Yeah, it's like a bait and switch game plan. Um, and so I, you know, in just some brief conversations with Tony, I felt like I've already learned a lot, right? Like you ask them their story, what they believe, right? They talk, and oftentimes I had this flip out this week, and they was like, I've talked for a long time, you tell me about yourself, what, what do you believe? Okay. Right? I mean, that's literally like I'm looking forward to say whatever you want to say. Um, <clears throat> The, one of the things that I talked about with my group, though, and this is the point in hospitality, right? Like, that's an easy question to ask somebody, tell me about yourself, what do you believe? And I think that question comes back, like, what do you believe? Often. But, you know, I say, like, this sounds so much more. And so I talked about uh, the Trinity and faith alone. That was kind of, like, contrary to the things that they had said. And I talked about death burial. Let's, let's say I talked, you know, Jesus died. And that's all I say, right? In the sense that it's like, I state the facts of the gospel, and I state how to get saved. But one of the things that I <clears throat> am debating within myself, and when I, when I read through like Stephen's sermon, you know, Peter's sermon, is they, they talk about all the facts, how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament, but then they don't stop there. They say, you need to do this. Like, you need to believe. Whereas I feel like the method that I've, sort of worked into here is a very much like this is good for me which works great in a relativistic culture like we have because I, like I told my group you could say I believe in the flying spaghetti monster and they'd be like sure that's great um, 
I mean, you could literally say the most outrageous thing, and no one's going to care. Mm-hmm. Is it legitimate gospel sharing if you don't go for that? Not only is this good for me, but this is also what you need to do. Like, is that a necessary step in gospel proclamation? Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I personally don't think so. Like, sharing the gospel, like, that's how you're saved. You're you're being direct in like this is how this is what I believe about salvation, which should go should click in his head. Oh, therefore, if I want to be saved in the same way he thinks salvation works, I need to do this as well. Is that what like, you say in the New Testament? I don't know the answer to that question. I'm, I'm, that's not a rhetorical question. Because in some cultures, um, okay, well, let me preface it by saying, we know that the Bible says that the gospel is offensive, the gospel mm-hmm. itself, right? But that doesn't necessarily mean the way that we present it has mm-hmm. to be offensive, because yeah. we are supposed to speak the truth in love. And so if I go into a culture where it is offensive to use the word, I don't know, use... Hmm? In some cultures, the point of finger is slipping someone off. Something like that. So if if we are in America, I think you really kind of have to feel it out, and it's probably more of a situation-based thing. With all due respect to that position, I feel like saying you murder Jesus is pretty offensive to any culture, right? Like Mm -hmm. when Peter says, not only is this true, but you were the ones that killed Jesus, and you need to turn around and repent of this sin because this is all your fault and blood's on your head. I feel like that's a pretty... I don't feel it's like accusatory. That. It's. I also think that's different, though. He was preaching a sermon. You're talking with someone. Okay. Okay. I mean, so, like, so, I, would you say like the the Philippian or, or not uh, Philip and the um, the eunuch? The eunuch, yeah, like that would be a more appropriate like gospel yeah. sharing moment to where he was like, the he was already reading like a book of the Old Testament, and he's like, can someone like who is there to explain this to me? And Philip's like, well. Actually, you see, <laughs> I would love to. Yes. So, are you are you advocating that, like, this would be a misapplication because there's a difference between like a sermon, like there is, I'm not like categorically there is what would be considered as like pulpit evangelism versus permanent uh, personal evangelism. So no. Is that like you're saying a, in style a, a difference? That well, you can say something like, I believe that in order to be saved, you have to do this. Something like that, but it's not like I don't know. I feel, I feel like you're gonna put them. You're gonna make them. Okay, first off, God's sovereign over salvation. At least that's what I believe. But like also, <laughs> when you're when you're like kind of accusing them, which which is good for a sermon when you're like listening. Like this is all also subjective. So I don't I don't know. This is all opinions. I think like, I think getting away from opinions is better. Because if we can say, like, the Bible teaches, if you can set the Bible as the authority for whatever you're presenting, then it's like the Bible teaches that the way for man to be saved is through faith in Christ alone. The Bible says speak the yeah, truth in love. And I think, I think that can be interpreted in different ways mm-hmm. and also applied in different ways. If you were to go to somebody and say, to them, this is the gospel, maybe a good follow-up question is, what do you think about that? Because they 
-hmm. But like, yeah. you can still give them a chance to respond by asking them what their thoughts are. Because I've done that before, and some people have just straight up said, like, that's not for me. And, you know, okay, that's a, that's a quote unquote rejection of the yeah. gospel, right? But then I've had other people say, that's really just not what I think about. Yeah. You know? And I think in the Bible, we see a lot of people just convert on the spot. Mm -hmm. Like, you read those Bible verses in Acts, mm -hmm. and someone gave a sermon, and they're like, and then 5,000 people got saved. And we're like, whoa, like, that does not happen today in today's culture. You don't just share the gospel and they just immediately accept it. Like, that's not really the culture in which we live. So that's why I brought up the culture. I'm, I'm not trying to even say the question I'm defending is the right position. The reason I bring it up, though, is at least for me, I feel like sometimes I hide behind a wall of facts without, like, any emotional connection to the conversation mm -hmm. because it's way less vulnerable. can at least check the box and I've shared the facts that's good peace yeah. out on this conversation and so that I, I don't want it to be like I'm running away because I'm afraid of like being personally invested in that conversation did you want to say something Caleb uh, hand up there give me a minute <laughs> Jojo. Um, just to kind of go back to like what we were originally talking about too with like what's what's kind of like the minimum to share mm -hmm. I think that's kind of the question that we're getting at right is this out because I didn't think about it because I wasn't witnessing to an unbeliever but in my life point uh, membership interview you know they want you to share the gospel mm -hmm. to them basically and and I kind of left like the action part out because like in my head I'm like this is not like I'm not telling them <laughs> how to be saved and so, you know so I like say some of the facts and then they're like and then you do what and I was like oh like but it, it made me it made me think though because I was like and. no they're, but they're right though because yeah. that's that is an essential part of the gospel mm -hmm. because if you just say you know blah 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 Jesus died and rose again and you stop there yeah. you haven't shared the whole like thing. that that doesn't necessarily mean anything mm -hmm. to them because they don't know like what are they supposed to do and how you know like you you didn't tell them how to be saved so you're telling them facts they might believe in that but they're not going to consciously be like oh that's what saves me unless they understand that that's what saves them. So even if it is just a simple, you know, this happened, blah, blah, Jesus side rose again, you must repent of your sins and believe in that. Even just that as a bare minimum, I think that is part of the minimum because yes. otherwise I think you leave they out don't know the, the actual thing. part yeah. about how you get saved from the information that you just received. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did you collect your thoughts? Yeah. So... <laughs> um, Culture definitely plays a massive part because, especially with America, because um, that's where I live. <laughs> what? <laughs> Who knew? Um, a lot of people will be like, they have all these different ideas of different religions and different ideologies that have been forced down their throats to where they just see Christianity as just another one that they don't care about. And so we are called to speak the truth in love, but sometimes the most loving thing you can do is just be blunt with that person and that they know that like what you're saying is truth and you have to be emotional with that um, and there were two times this past year that I had shared the gospel with people and one she was just kinda like that's nice that you think that <laughs> and I was like okay 
do your work, Lord. And then the other one, I like, it was the first time I'd shared the gospel in a while, and so like I started crying with, <laughs> with her, and I was like, okay, where'd that come from? But I, I've now it's I've I've had different experiences of like being super emotional with someone and being like super facts with someone, and it all comes back to God is sovereign because I feel like neither worked. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. <laughs> Don't be discouraged. <laughs> but, but that's my experience. <laughs> yeah. Vicky. <laughs> Vicky had her hand up for a while. <laughs> the voice from darkness. <laughs> I also kind of am right there with you. I'm just like looking at the missionaries. And then, like, just because it's especially like at work, because so many people think so many different things at Starbucks. And it's all just very, it all boils down to this well, it's your truth, so I can't say that it's wrong, but I can't, I'm not going to say that I agree with it, but I totally support you. Your with, truth culture. With, with yeah. that. And that's been kind of difficult because it's like they know I'm a Christian, they know, like, and then I'll share, like, the parts of the gospel with them, but then I liked what I think it was easier. That was like, no, you're just keeping it back to like, well, the Bible says this, and yeah, they might not think that the Bible is like, like what you were saying, Caleb, like this. Oh, that's nice that you think that, but it's still like, well, this is so. It's still having that love aspect of you're not like you have you are a sinner and you're going to hell. Do something about it, but it's still being like, no, this is the authority for what you should live your life by. But it then. It, and you're also not hiding behind, well, this is just what I believe. Mm -hmm. So I'm, you know. I've being firm. Real, well, off that, that's the reason. It's really quick. Um, <laughs> I've, I've found that at Schwab to, like, refute that stuff is going down the by what standard route. Like, why do you believe what you believe? Mm -hmm. Yeah. They can't defend it. Mm -hmm. If they're an atheist, they have no reason to believe anything. Mm -hmm. And then yeah. that's when you can, like, back it up with, well, I believe that the only objective source of truth that we have for sure is the scriptures. Like, we can go to that and trust what that says. And then this is what the scriptures say. And that has kind of shut down, yeah. <laughs> shut down their conversations and causes them to listen a lot more. Mm -hmm. um, and they kind of take you more seriously, too, because, yeah, most of the time they're not really basing what they believe off of anything other than what society says. So when yeah. you're actually like, well, I believe this because this is the word of God and it's true, then they can't really be like, uh, that's, yeah. that's yeah. yeah. They just think I'm crazy at that point. That's all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. All right. I think Paul says that he becomes all things for the gospel, so when we have conversations, I feel like it's going to vary and depending on where we are, mm -hmm. but there are certain things that we can't leave out, and so yeah. it's important to present it in a way where they'll be able to understand it, reflect it, mm -hmm. but then also try to apply it. And so, because if we just say, wow, my magical book believes this, <laughs> what does yours believe? You know, they're not going to really take heed in what you say. Yeah, that's right. Sam? So, basically, the sort of like summary takeaway that I'm taking from your advice, Frankie's advice, five years, Chloe, is yes, what I'm feeling is 
legitimate in the sense that there needs to be a call to faith in what uh, the facts are. But one of the better ways to do it is basically instead of like it being so personally attacking, be like basically this is what you know scripture says that if if you are going to go to heaven, this is what you have to believe. You know, some or just one has to do. Right, and I, I mean I rework the words whatever, but the point being. Both under the authority of Scripture, and you're just one other person telling that other person that this is what Scripture says you have to do in order to be saved. Yeah. Is that is that a fair like takeaway of what you were? In my opinion, but that's just opinion too. It's also so. if they do become a believer, then it also just kind of sets the precedent for them that they have to live by the Bible, because sometimes people might say the sinner's prayer, but then not really give a second thought. Mm-hmm. Sure. Right. And that's, I was just trying to distill. Last two, Chloe and then Danielle. I have a question. So we don't have time for this. So Danielle. <laughs> I think at the end of the day we have to remember that um, what we're pointing these people towards is we're giving them hope, joy found only in Jesus, and freedom. And so I don't think the conversation has to be antagonistic in the sense that you're a sinner, you're going to hell, you killed Jesus. It could be, hey, subconsciously or Consciously, people are looking for hope. They're looking for that freedom that they can't find in the world, right? And we can offer that to them. I think that has to be the core of, like, there is this hope. There is this joy and this freedom that you can find. And it doesn't have to be this conversation of you're the biggest sinner and you're going to hell and all those things, you know? So just a reminder for everybody. It's ultimately about the hope and joy and, yeah. We're out of time. Sorry. You want to present the call to worship? Sam, I have no clue why, because I literally saw you dressed earlier, but for some reason I saw you coming up there in like a whole pastor's outfit, you know, with like the button down and, <laughs> <laughs> and the khakis. <laughs> I should say I was disallowed from wearing athletic shorts and polos in the past two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> try to do here is um, on a night where we have a discussion we try to finish on the authority which is the word of God going into Sunday with the same text that LifePoint will be preaching on the next day Um, and then we even try through social media and some other channels to sort of reflect back on what was said on Sunday and so this is really just an effort to sort of call you to worship to get you in the state of mind that is reflecting on the text that is to come and to worship Christ through the text that we have, and I really, really like the text um, for this week in the sense that I think this text for this week is a good time for it to fall. So let's pray, and then we'll get into digesting the text just a little bit. Father, I want to thank you for the discussion. I thank you that um, you've given us a family where we can, uh, you know, I can feel comfortable to 
learn and to, to, to be progressing still, and I hope that we can all feel that comfort to be growing and developing. But Father, as we approach the word for this evening and um, you know, look at some of your sayings on the cross here, I pray that we would be astounded by your majesty on the cross and your humiliation, your willingness to suffer for us, and I pray that we would be willing to be faithful representatives of you in light of all that you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so the text for this week is um, John 19, 23 through 27. John 19, 23 through 27. Um, at this point, Jesus has been raised up, and Pilate has sort of said, I said what I said about putting the king of the Jews in three different languages. Verse 23, when the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. This was to fulfill the scripture, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. So the soldiers did these things. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. I absolutely love what I would consider both the unrealness and the realness of the gospel narratives. And what I mean by that is often when I come in contact with a text in which I intend to draw something out for us in a call to worship, I look for something that I consider like that's an unreal moment. Like it's just a shocking bit. It's like a diamond of information that we can really lay out in some nights. I love that part of scripture. I love seeing the interconnections and seeing like John especially has all these super deep parallels that he's drawing back to the Old Testament. And the more you meditate on it, it's like turning a diamond with all the different facets. You can always draw something different out of it. Um, but one of the things that helps me trust in scripture is also just what I would consider the very realness of it. It's so simple sometimes, like sometimes there is something super deep. And then sometimes it's remarkably not deep. Right in the sense that it's like, wow, that's definitely something humans would do. It, it inspires my, like, oh, that that text is authentic because Peter said something really dumb, you know, or, <laughs> or, or in whatever way, um, you you see humans typically respond. But in this case, we see Jesus respond in a very Jesus-like way, both in the miraculous and non-miraculous ways within this text. So for this evening, I would like to draw out three quick contrasts. That's kind of, I, you know, John's all about these light and dark paradigms. He's all about contrasts. And, and so when I, I looked at this text, I saw John doing a lot of different contrasts all inside of one story, one narrative. And so the first contrast that I'd like to draw out is Jesus' abasement is set against the backdrop of God's sovereignty. We don't have to look very far into this text to see something that demands worship from us. What do we see first? We see that Jesus is stripped down, right? His clothes are being ripped off of him. This is basically everything that could possibly have any earthly, worldly values is being divested of him. And so Jesus is in a very humiliated state. When we refer to the humiliation of Christ, it's not just some abstract, ethereal theologic term. I mean, Christ is being humiliated, 
by the treatment he's receiving on the tree. This, the soldiers are so callous to the situation that they're gambling away the, the event and the clothes and, and probably thinking very little of it. So from the human perspective, right, and we see this in the apostles' response, it looks like everything is pretty much lost. I mean, this Messiah who's going to lead the revolt against the Romans is currently being crucified by the Romans. It's not a real good look for the Christian hope that the apostles had come to believe in. But even in what appeared to be a loss, the contrast is set that God is still sovereignly in control of every detail of this event. Where the soldiers thought that they were just gambling over a garment, what John is trying to draw out for us here is that they are acting as agents that are confirming the timeline of God's redemptive plan for humanity. Later, you're familiar with the Jesus' quote from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Right? And that's Psalm 22. This quote that J John picks is also conveniently from Psalm 22, which I believe is the most commonly quoted psalm in the New Testament. I think it's very interesting because, you know, it happens later in, in the time, timeline where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But I think what John is doing here is he's, he's, he hears Jesus' words those are the very, that's the very first line of the psalm, which basically would have called the listener's mind to Psalm 22. And as John reflects back on this event, he knows Psalm 22. He, he looks through Psalm 22 in his mind and sees the whole event Christologically, right? Like everything that is going on here is satisfying what this psalm said would happen. And so while from the human perspective, it kind of looks like everything is going really poorly, what we see is that even the soldiers' anti-Christ actions are still right on God's timeline, right? Like, John is saying nothing is going off schedule here. Just because Jesus is being crucified, everything is still going according to plan in this narrative. The second contrast I'd like to set here is between the soldiers and the women. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I don't know why, right? I feel like this has to be for the sake of a contrast. At the end of verse 24, John kind of makes this abrupt statement. So the soldiers did these things, right? Like we already know who's doing these things. But he, he restates it. Why? Because then he puts a, a harsh but. Like, here's what the soldiers are doing, but here's what these other people are doing. So besides John, I think it might be a fair question to ask, where is everybody else? Where's the disciples? But here, instead of disciples versus soldiers, what we see is, or apostles in that sense, is we, we see a contrast between the callous soldiers and those who were willing to stand by the cross till Jesus' very end. It's difficult to be sure who is at the cross during this time, right? I mean, the narratives sort of have different recordings of exactly who was where at this point. But so perhaps it's a little unwise to speculate, oh, Peter was here and John was here and Thomas was over here. But speaking positively, it sure seems the case that these women were faithful to him in his darkest hour. And I think that's really what John is trying to draw out here. And this is, what I, this is precisely what I mean when I say realness of a text. This is just a factual account of what happened in some sense. And yet, many people who are, you know, you'd expect to be the boldest today are also the first ones to disappear when there's any pressure. And 
the people that you would expect to be the weakest are also the ones that hang out and are the most faithful of friends and even in a relational sense, but also in the Christian sense, some of the people that you would not expect to be, you know, super bold are the ones that are standing by Jesus until the very end. And I, I would also like to point out, you know, who does Jesus pick out of this list, right? Or, or rather, who does John, sorry, highlight here? He highlights, obviously, uh, Mary, Jesus' mother, and there's some debate about this Mary's sister. But we're, we're obviously going to hear about Mary, the mother of Jesus, here in a couple seconds. But what about these other two people? We obviously have Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, and we also have Mary, the wife of Clopas, right? I mean, who's Clopas, right? I mean, <laughs> why do we care about Clopas? Well, what I think is really interesting here is that I think Jesus rewards this faithfulness, right? These are the people that are faithful by him to the very end. Who does Jesus appear to first in the garden after his resurrection? He appears to Mary Magdalene. A lot of scholars think that Clopas is the same as Cleopas, which is on the road to Emmaus. So it could very well be that the people that were there by Jesus to the very end are the people that Jesus made sure to go right back to after his resurrection and and make sure that they knew he was indeed resurrected. And so I just think this is a very interesting um, parallel of Jesus rewarding faithfulness in the people that stuck by him to the very end. And we see this in, in the epistles, this theme as well. Those who are, are going to stand by Christ will also reign with Christ. And, and in the Gospels, it, it says that if you, are, if you don't deny me before men, or if you do deny me before men, then I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Those that are faithful, persevering followers of Christ can be sure that Christ will not forget their actions or leave them without an eternal reward. The final contrast I wish to draw out from this text is, I would say, possibly the most important lesson that we can learn here tonight is that the suffering servant cares for others. The suffering servant cares for others. This is this last little section here with uh, his interaction with Mary and the Apostle John. When we suffer in some way, we want other people to cater to us, right? In, in a super light, trivial example, right? I think especially men, for some reason, we, we get a case of the sniffles and it's like, you know, we're laid up for three weeks and, you know, demand that we have chicken noodle soup delivered to us, right? Um, you know, but on a, on a more serious and graver note, when we are in a time of suffering, the immediate reaction is that we tend to be self-centered, right? When, when I'm hurting... The world suddenly becomes about me. We tend to spiral into pity parties. We tend to hyper-focus on what other people aren't doing for us that they should be doing for us. I would, I would hope that we can all agree that this time right here in the text is, is the pinnacle of human suffering of all time, right? Not only physically is this one of the worst sufferings that you could possibly endure, but also spiritually I mean, there is no heavier sin weight that has ever fallen on someone than Christ is experiencing right here. So if anyone does literally have the right to demand that people focus on him, if anyone deserves to be self-centered, and if anyone deserves to sort of seek their own glory in that moment, it is Jesus. And sure, Jesus is going to come again in glory someday, and he is going to receive all that. But currently in this narrative, he is... He is suffering, and, you know, one could expect a self-centered response. 
But that's not what we see Jesus do here. What do we see Jesus do? Even in the pinnacle moment of his suffering, is he concerned about himself? No. Jesus is caring and concerned for others, his mother in particular. He is other-centered. He is selfless right to the very end. He knows that he's going to die soon. Um, and even considering his resurrection and ascension, he knows that he's going to be gone soon. He knows full well that he's going to be departed. But he wants to be sure, not that he's cared for, but he wants to be sure that his mother is cared for. We could assess this coldly, sort of from just the legal perspective, right? Christ is fulfilling the law right to the very last moment. Honor your father and your mother. And, and that is true. But I'd rather focus on the relational element for a moment and just draw an application um, in a relational sense, I, I thought to myself first, and I thought, you know, you know I, I think I do a pretty good job of being other-centered when I'm not feeling well or when I'm suffering in some minor way. But then I, I realized sort of a, a harsh truth. I think, this is, I think this is a fair statement. I think this harsh truth is that I'm just not really uncomfortable all that often, right? You think about our life, our culture, our whole setup. We do literally anything to avoid truly being uncomfortable. And so my, my first thought was, oh, I'm, I'm doing pretty good. And then I was like, no, you're not. No, you're not. You're just not uncomfortable very often. And so what, I would, what I'd like to challenge here is before we pronounce just how holy we are, I'd rather challenge that we, we actually do tend to be pretty self-centered pretty quick if we end up in any pain or discomfort, whether that's physically or emotionally. We can become pretty self-centered. We can become pretty snarky pretty quick, too. You might be one who doesn't like fly off the handle yelling at people. But without yelling a single word, do we not show our self-centeredness and in, in our cold words and our terse attitudes and our, our, our little like cutting jabs and our jokes? Do we not use sarcasm to sort of veil seething anger underneath the surface but you know it was just a joke and you can kind of say oh i didn't i didn't mean anything by it you know i i think i think we we get behind this status of like oh i you know i don't yell at people right i'm 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 better than that right i don't lash out at people but but really it's the same it's the same root sin issue you might feel better about yourself for not yelling at somebody but if you're if you're getting in those little jabs to avoid you know your confrontations that you hate, then, then you're just as wrong as somebody who is outwardly verbalizing it in a sinful way. So while, while I'm up to a little bit of meddling here, I thought, I'd, I thought I'd add something that I would consider even a little bit more directly uh, getting me in trouble, but also a little bit more of a direct application from the text. Um, instead of such a general interpersonal application, let me make an application that I think you'll see right here very, very clearly. Jesus is, at this point, now a very full-grown man. He's a full adult. He has been out on his own for a while. He's been out of the house. He's, he's his own man, okay? But nevertheless, not only is he concerned about his mother's well-being physically, but he's also obeying the law from the heart and truly honoring his mother and father, as the command would go, her, his, his mother being in her 40s or 50s at this point. My challenge tonight is that, as a whole, we are young adults who are either 
beginning to be out on our own or are just about to be out on our own. And we need to realize that our parents, too, will need to be taken care of as they age. And that caretaking may be here sooner than you think, might be here sooner than you like. But I'll say this, they don't just need your money, right? They don't need you to go out and make enough money so that you can retire them to some home. They need to, I mean, they should be honored and loved relationally. Every single one of those things that I said about cold words, cold attitudes, sarcastic jabs, you know, we, we want to apply it to our friends, right? I would actually offer that that's an easier place to apply it. But everything that I've said there applies to your parents and to your family as well. I recognize that this is kind of an odd application to end on in some sense, but there's a very simple reason that I want to end here is that I see Jesus caring deeply for his parent in his greatest time of suffering. And, and conversely, I don't think that we always do the greatest job of honoring our parents as Jesus does here, even, even as an adult. Sometimes it's just a whole lot easier to be, you know, to have that holy patience, if you will, with your friends than it is to have it with your, your families. And I just want to prepare you for the reality that, that, that caretaking might come sooner than you think. And, and a lot of these relational issues that you have with your parents don't get better as they age. Actually, a lot of times as people age, those things get more tense and, and worse. And so if we don't intentionally seek out the well-being and truly love our family and our parents like we would naturally apply to our friends, then, then I wouldn't expect it to get better. And, and so I just wanted to draw out, like, this isn't just some general, like, interpersonal application. This happens to be very conveniently between Jesus and his mother, right? And obviously Jesus is perfect, right? So there's maybe a little less friction that has occurred there over the years than happens with imperfect humans. But as we attempt to emulate Christ, I would offer that we need to emulate him in honoring our parents even as we are suffering. So as we go into worship tomorrow then, let's take away these, let's worship knowing these three truths. First, no matter what is happening in life around you, very simply, know that God is in control, right? Nothing is happening outside of what is um, God's will. Second, know that we must stand by Jesus when others you've known for years don't. And I think you're experiencing this, you know, coming out of high school and, and seeing friends that you thought would always be there, always worshiping alongside you, right? They're not, right? There will be people that fall away, but hopefully we can be like these honorable women who stood by Jesus right to the very end. And then third, know that we must love others, even your parents, even during your times of personal suffering, right? Actively loving them, actively being concerned for others' well-being, even when it is uh, a not very fun time for us, for whatever reason it might be, okay? That's my little take on John chapter 19, 23 through 27. So as we go into tomorrow, um, if at all possible, try to participate in worship, try to sing out, try to be engaged. Um, makes for a much better worship service when uh, everyone is actually participating, right? So be engaged, listen. Uh, I mean, some of you, that might mean take notes. Some of you might not. Whatever, however you learn best. <laughs> if it means talking with your neighbor, 
moderate how much that is, right? Okay. All right. Very good. Thank you guys for uh, participating this evening. Um,